Welcome back to another Meet Kevin Report. It is already episode 22. How exciting. Welcome back. We've got a lot to cover. And yesterday, of course, was the Super Bowl. Oh, boy. So we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about the Super Bowl. We'll talk about the Chinese balloons. We'll talk Tesla. We'll talk markets. We'll talk Catalyst. we got a lot to cover. So yeah, let's get started. First thing, oh, my gosh. Some of the ads at the Super Bowl were ridiculous. And when I say ridiculous, I mean frustrating, but probably nowhere near as frustrating as this one guy got, okay, and there's this video of him circulating on Twitter, and it's kind of a little bit embarrassing, <laughs> but let's just say he's not very happy that uh, his team lost the game, and uh, <laughs> the Chiefs make a pretty easy kickoff, look at what happens to this guy. Here, I'll, we'll go ahead and play it, and we'll have the audio on, too. All right, ready for this? Here we go. Destroys the TV. It's almost like he's going to start attacking people. So anyway, <laughs> it just destroys the TV completely off the wall. Um, this is a pretty, pretty, um, let's just say he's very passionate. But uh, then again, you know, he had somebody uh, rooting for, uh, you know, his team uh, that uh, generally uh, you bet against. I uh, hate to say that, but uh, we did find out that, yes, one of the biggest fans near Philly happens to be Jim Kramer. So, uh, of course, w we had to, in the honor of it, had to mention Inverse Kramer is back again. And so when Kramer went to the World Series, well, let's just say Philly lost, and now the Eagles have lost. And uh, Jim Kramer's on that side as well. So, so maybe that individual... Needs to talk to Jim Cramer about what's going on here. But anyway, one of the most entertaining ads that I thought, if you haven't seen it yet, and I'd love to touch on it briefly, was, and, and we didn't even realize it was a car ad at first because we missed the early part of it, the first five seconds or so of it. But I have to say, the premature electrification ad was absolutely fire. Uh, that would be this ad right here. If you haven't seen it, I'll give it a quick play because it's just worth mentioning and bringing up. They did a great job. Listen in. Are you excited about buying an electric vehicle but worried that it could leave you unsatisfied? Then you could be one of many Americans concerned about premature electrification. Symptoms may include fearing you might not be able to last as long as you'd like. There was plenty of charge before, and sometimes it goes away. A lot of times. I've been working a lot. Being unsure if you'll have enough power to handle your payload. <laughs> so just, I'm going to pause quickly for a moment. Keep in mind, the brilliance of this Dodge Ram ad is that you literally have uh, people who consider electric vehicles when they want to go buy a new car. But what happens is they're worried about the whole range anxiety aspect because we have gas stations all over America. Uh, and even though we've got great Tesla supercharging networks, a lot of electric vehicle companies don't have great supercharger networks. For example, Lucid uses the Electrify America supercharger network. And so you have this commercial that's playing this double innuendo. <laughs> it almost makes it seem like it's an ED ad. I don't write down this function ad. Um, but anyway, it, 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 the brilliance of it is uh, this, this uh, worry 
about uh, basically running out of power too soon and having to stop. And uh, really, uh, as, a, as a Dodge Ram commercial, pickups being essentially the number one selling vehicle in America, uh, is, uh, in, in my opinion, just pure brilliance in terms of marketing. Uh, of course, anytime we get electric vehicle ads, like the GM electric vehicle ad, you end up seeing Tesla sh searches spike without Tesla sending it, spending a dime. That happened yesterday during the game as well. As soon as the other manufacturers started running EV ads, Tesla searches spiked. Tesla actually adjusted their prices just minutes before the game, which I thought that was quite interesting. But we'll talk about that later. But let's keep going with the ad for a moment. I don't know if I got the power for this baby. I'm adventurous. I like to go all the way. I don't want to have to question if we're even going to make it. Yeah. It's a concern. Lacking the confidence about getting and being able to keep a charge. Having to stop every time we got really excited, that wouldn't work for me. Stop. Start. Stop. Start. If P.E., premature electrification, is something you're worried about, go to RamRev.com and find out if the Ram 1500 Rev, with options being designed to extend range in satisfying ways, is right for you. Stop. This, this was by far uh, one, of the, one of my favorite ads. And uh, th there was only really one ad uh, that beat this. Uh, until this particular ad, uh, I, I, I mean the one that I'll, I'll show in a moment, until the next ad, uh, this one by far, in my opinion, took the cake. It was, it was so good. Uh, so I really enjoyed that one. Uh, the, uh, the entire game, in my opinion, really, really good, though. Uh, with the exception, of course, a lot of folks really frustrated about the holding call, and I'll go to that ad in just a moment, but uh, it's worth just bringing up the holding call. A lot, a lot of upset people uh, talking about this. Uh, on the internet, uh, Twitter's going crazy over the holding call. Uh, probably a lot, obviously, of Eagles fans <laughs> not very happy. But uh, here's just somebody who happens to have the clip. So shout out to that's good sports uh, and their channel. But uh, here's your within the last you know two and a half three minutes of the game. The nice reset to first down. The Chiefs get to milk the clock down and end up kicking the field goal. But uh, this holding call right here. A lot of people pretty frustrated over this because they're not even in a catchable position. Doesn't look like they're impeded whatsoever on the move over here. Uh, and getting called out for holding on that, uh, setting up the Chiefs there. A uh, little bit of a stretch. I mean, hey, you know, they could have won anyway. But it's leading a lot of people to think, okay, all right, that's it. It's official. The Super Bowl was rigged. People had a lot of bets going on the Super Bowl. In fact, there were potentially 50 million online bets. That's 50 million individual online bets made online on the Super Bowl. And what you ended up having was over $16 billion of bets riding on various different aspects uh, of this uh, of the Super Bowl. Really incredible. <laughs> that is, that's a lot of money. Uh, and this is the first time that you've seen so much betting happen and, and, uh, as well because betting is actually, sports betting is actually legal where the Super Bowl was being held. Unlike last year when it was at the SoFi Stadium in California where you're not allowed to bet. One thing that did frustrate me, though, was they didn't show us the color of the Gatorade that ended up getting spilled on the winning coach. We didn't, like, they totally missed that angle cut. Rihanna uh, announcing her pregnancy was really, like, awesome. <laughs> like, what a cool way to do it. And good on her. I mean, she's got to be, like, six or seven months pregnant. But for taking the cake 
by far, what I'm about to show you absolutely destroyed us. Because let's just say, and I'll explain afterwards, but we fell victim to this as well. So we're watching this ad on Jesus. And then after the Jesus ad, we're like, all right, looks like we're going back to the game. And so what happens? Here's the ad. Welcome back to Super Bowl 57. So far, Greg, the game's going like you expected. Yeah, so far, these teams, they've really... <laughs> Tubi. Let's take a journey. So, basically, you've got Tubi here, and this is by far marketing brilliance. The game supposedly comes back with two sports commenters talking about, oh, game, is it going as expected? Not saying anything particularly about the game, but they set it all up to make it look like we were back at the Super Bowl and that the commercials were over. And then all of a sudden, it looks like somebody on the smart TV is starting to screw with the settings like they're sitting on the remote control. As soon as the little thing came up, all of us started looking at each other and we're like, what? Who's sitting on the remote? Get off. And I felt so embarrassed afterwards because by the time the ad was over, I'm the guy standing there with like, I, I got up to get the remote. We have a little wall mount for it and I'm, I'm getting the remote and I'm trying to hit the cancel button on the TV. When we realized we got had, I was the idiot holding the remote. I'm like, my God, that was marketing brilliance. I mean, we got trolled so hard. That was by far uh, the, um, uh, the, the greatest. Uh, that, was, that took the cake from premature electrification. My gosh, <laughs> that was for sure a win right there. Uh, so Super Bowl, that was pretty intense uh, and really enjoyed that. Uh, that was uh, also a very good game. I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I know you've got some of the, you know, the, the, the ref calls are going to come up as, uh, as, as frustrating. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I feel like being a ref is probably the most thankless job there is. You don't really get any of the glory. You're kind of only hated when you make a call. It's like you're better off just sort of disappearing into non-existence. Now, I, you know, I didn't have a hat in this ring in terms of who would win or, or, or whom I was uh, betting on. Uh, I didn't make any bets on the game. Uh, although we'll be doing a big uh, trading challenge uh, starting this week, probably with CPI, with uh, our team, and, and then, of course, posting those trades with the course members. One of the things that we're actually thinking about doing, and and it's it, this one's more for the lulls, but what we might do is... Anytime Jim Cramer says something, we might try to figure, okay, what's what's best positioned from like a volatility point of view to potentially volatility trade, uh, the opposite of, of some of the Cramer trades. Uh, he should double down on that. Like he he should own that because he gets so much attention uh, for for people inverse trading him. Uh, it, it's it, it's pretty incredible. So, uh, but yeah, and, and I mean, look, Super Bowl, absolutely awesome. Elon Musk was there. Uh, with uh, Rupert Murdoch, founder of Fox News and News Corp, uh, and his wife. You did have one anti-Tesla ad, but apparently the guy didn't have enough money to actually air the anti-Tesla full self-driving ad in every state. Uh, not even in like the Los Angeles area. We didn't see it. We're all like, we we were all waiting for the anti-Tesla ad. <laughs> we, we never got served the anti-Tesla ad. So I guess the anti-Tesla guy, he is able to say, oh yeah, we were an advertiser in the Super Bowl, but in like select markets. I don't know, stupid. Probably, probably doesn't want to invest in California ads because people like Teslas out here. But uh, otherwise, 
Uh, look, I hope you had a great time at the Super Bowl if, if you watched it. Uh, that was uh, that was fun. It was very entertaining, very engaging. So uh, do I think it's rigged? Oh, man, you know, I don't want to upset half of the people involved uh, <laughs> in the Super Bowl. But, you know, I, I, I don't think it was the best call. Uh, rigged, hashtag rigged is literally trending uh, on Twitter right now. Uh, you know, do I think that was prematurely rigged? Probably not. Uh, is it possible? Sure, maybe. But what's fascinating, or, or what I think should come out of it, is this potential for maybe some like transparent voting on these sort of calls, right? Where basically maybe you have a council of, I don't know, uh, some sort of uh, statistically significant number of refs. And maybe they do this, but it's not super transparent to us, right? We just get the call out of the box. Oh, okay, yeah, it's that way or that way, right? <coughs> Maybe what they need to come up with is some form of, uh, uh, you know, transparent board of, of people who review it. And maybe it's like, a, let's just say a 21-person board or something like that, or 12-person board, whatever. And, and you could actually see how each individual person voted uh, that goes into making that call. Because then that way, if it comes, or, uh, you know, you come to find out that maybe one of the people on that board that voted one way was actually making bets on the game that would benefit from that call, uh, you know, we'd be able to smoke that out, right? That's probably where in the future things need to go. We're big fans, obviously, here on the channel of transparency, and I think most of you in finance are big fans of transparency. In fact, there was this uh, Bloomberg piece this morning talking about uh, basically insider trading now happening not through individual stocks of companies, but through basically ETFs that have a lot of exposure to certain stocks. So basically what, what could happen is you might have the SEC watching, an in, and this relates to the Super Bowl, but you might have the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, watching uh, insiders to see if they're buying and selling, let's say, Tesla stock uh, right before earnings. Uh, and, and then if they're not buying, if they're you know, doing that, they might be subject to insider trading investigations. But if they're doing it through an ETF, maybe those disclosures aren't necessary because they're not actually buying or selling any kind of Tesla shares. So they could just go YOLO call options on an ETF, let's say, that has a lot of exposure to Tesla before earnings and really play earnings with insider information. Uh, the Bloomberg piece talked about there potentially being a weird set of about $200 million of moves per year in ETFs before mergers and acquisitions and earnings, especially in healthcare and tech. Interesting. But see, that is the kind of, you know, frustrating thing about uh, untransparent markets, right? People are like, ah, we don't like shadow markets. We don't, we don't like to feel like people are making bets without being able to know that they could be making insider moves, right? I think the same sort of reason is why we have very transparent insider stock sales and buys at companies, and those are required. Uh, and I think that's probably the same reason why you probably ultimately uh, want to end up having that happen with the uh, uh, with with sort of sports and and ref calls as well I think that transparency would be good uh, I'm a big fan of that but uh, who, who knows you know again on, on one side you're gonna have people going hey look who cares uh, you know the Chiefs would have won anyway <laughs> right uh, and on the other side I think people who just lost a lot of money are man it's rigged <laughs> so there's obviously gonna be a massive bias on each side but who knows but that's my take on the Super Bowl I really enjoyed it I hope you did as well it was great so, um, anyway. All right. Uh, so, moving on. We've got a lot to talk about. I think uh, next we ought to talk a little bit about Tesla. 
Uh, and then after we talk a little bit about Tesla, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the market. And we've got a lot of catalysts actually coming up as well. Actually, you know what? We should do catalysts first. I think a lot of you folks are, are curious about the catalysts coming up. Uh, join Congress. Insider rules don't apply. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, only one bad call. That's pretty good for the NFL. Uh, people are calling out two holding calls from the NFL during the last uh, game. And there, and there were two where it was kind of like, eh, come on, man. That was holding. But, you know, whatever. Whatever. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. Uh, so, let's go. Uh, let's do a quick catalyst quickly. And then after we do some catalysts, we'll jump into... Uh, uh, Tesla and some of the other uh, news that we've got going on, but uh, obviously this is going to be a week of catalysts, right? So we may as well look at the latest estimates and uh, get those going. But uh, I'm glad y'all. Seems it seems like y'all enjoyed the game. All right, and here we go. Now we got to talk catalysts for the week because we've got a lot of them. Not only do we have CPI to talk about and some of the momentum revisions, uh, but we've got to talk earnings as well. And since today is Monday, well, guess who reports on Monday? It's Monday.com. <laughs> Monday.com reported uh, they beat. They're up about 10% in the pre-market. Well, we'll see if that actually lasts throughout the day. But what was interesting was if you bet on cybersecurity, last week you could have pulled off an easy trade. And these are the kind of trades that we want to uh, uh, you know, start working pretty regularly with our course members. But last week you could have pulled an easy trade. Fortinet came out with smashing earnings. And then that led to Cloudflare's beat, in our opinion. I mean, it was, it was not necessarily one led to the other, but it was clearly a signal that cybersecurity plays were still being bet on uh, for uh, wins, and they ended up coming out with wins. And so what did we have here? Software service companies, again, beating. Monday.com coming in with fourth quarter revenue of 149.9. Street was looking for 141. Uh, their forecast smashed 2023. Revenue was expected to be 660. They're looking at closer to a midpoint of 690. That's about 8, 9% of a beat uh, for the year. That's fantastic if they could pull it off. They only lost about six cents a share. They were expected to lose 42 cents per share. So uh, a less money losing company or smaller money losing company. So great job, Monday.com. Could actually be good for software companies coming up uh, that still have to report, whether that's Trade Desk, although they're in advertising, we'll see. Whether that's Salesforce, we'll see. TBD. Uh, obviously, uh, we've got uh, CPI tomorrow. Let's quickly just catch up on CPI and let's hit some of the other catalysts for the week because we've got a few catalysts coming up. So, of course, there's this potential issue with the CPI report that because of the revisions to uh, CPI weightings, we actually expect that CPI ended in 2020 higher uh, than, than we were originally told. That's not so much of an issue because it's not like we're going back and changing that data based on these new weightings, although there are always revisions, uh, which wouldn't be surprised to see some of that. Uh, the, the big thing is now we're dealing with higher weightings for housing. And that's going to end up being really good, but probably not until towards the end of this year where we actually really start seeing those owner equivalent rents and housing as services start coming down. That's like lodging and rent, right? We really want to see that anchor. When we get to that anchor, it's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic to have housing have a higher weight. But unfortunately, in the interim, it's going to be bad to have housing have a greater weight because we haven't actually seen those declines yet. So you do have this, this momentum of basically housing 
being a lot stronger going into 2023 that could lead to a bad CPI read tomorrow. And there's a reason why investors are loading up basically on contracts to protect themselves. For example, contracts against a 10% decline on the S&P 500, a 10% decline, folks, are now 1.7 times more common than options that would benefit from a 10% rally. This is a 10% SPY put call ratio here uh, on 10% on gains or losses, and that ratio is sitting at 1.7 times. Uh, that skew is sitting at the highest level of skew against the SPY, the S&P 500, since August of 2022. Now, keep in mind, for some of you who don't know, if, when I say SPY, SPY is an ETF that you could use to trade uh, the S&P 500 in. You can't actually trade directly in indexes or indices. You could trade directly in ETFs, which basically try to mirror the index. Small clarification there. But anyway, SPY is one of those. So that's just one that I tend to regularly talk about here. Uh, anywho, so uh, there, there's a lot of hedging that's coming up because of this CPI read. Obviously, uh, the CPI read is expected to be 0.5% month over month headline, 0.4% core. That core is an issue because even if we meet, you're still looking at 4.8% on core. That means outside of food and gas, you're still looking at 4.8% annualized inflation. Yes, that's lower than the 6.2% we expect for headline, but still, it's, it's quite a chunk. You know, a couple days ago, we were sitting at 0.3% for core month over month. That was revised again to 0.4%. Last month, we came in at 0.3, and that was revised up to 0.4 already. So uh, in, in my opinion, you, you've, got, you've got a potential for some negativity here. But the issue with making bets on CPI is a lot of traders already have priced bearish bets in uh, pretty well. So there's actually this belief that, hey, look, if we get a miss on CPI, it's already built in. Like, you're not going to make much money on your puts. That's the theory, unless things really go bad. Uh, so things would, would actually have to probably miss substantially to the upside rather than just meet. So I think a meet, you pro you're probably looking at stability in the market. Uh, if And if you get a slight beat, you're kind of, I feel like, almost going to get the eye roll. So if you get like a 0.1% beat, you get sort of the eye roll from the market where, yes, the S&P and the NASDAQ are going to drop 1% or 2%. You know, you're going to see that right away. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised that mostly you kind of have an eye roll from the markets because markets have kind of already been trying to price in a, a lot of that uh, that pain, so to speak, for uh, CPI. We'll see. Obviously, we will see. We don't have that for sure answer yet. Uh, but it's something to pay attention to, and we'll see it tomorrow at 5.30 a.m. That's in about 24 hours from now. Uh, and, uh, well, you know, hey, <laughs> I'll be covering it live. Uh, so hopefully you're here with me when those numbers come out. Now, uh, the other thing to keep in mind is if we do break to the downside, even by 0.1%, uh, it's probably going to be even easier to go green on markets because so many bearish bets would have to basically get covered. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that, that would be nice to see, <laughs> right? So here's the JP Morgan uh, expectation on a CPI and what the Fed might do. I think it's quite interesting. Look at this. So <laughs> this is... And this is the next two CPI reads. The, the JP Morgan's going ahead to the next two CPI reads. And what you end up having here, look at this, folks. Their bull case scenario is that, no, we're not going to come out with a 6.2% CPI read, but we're actually going to come out with a 5.7 in the, uh, uh, the uh, <laughs> bull case scenario. This is like, 
smoking hopium right here. This is ridiculous. They would expect the Fed to immediately pause uh, for March. So a March 22nd pause if inflation comes in this low to 5.7. This is nutty, okay? The expectation is 6.2. Boy, if we could get headline in at 5.7, five, at five, uh, moon. <laughs> but but I, I don't know. I mean, this, this seems like it would be ridiculous. And it also depends what the month-over-month -month numbers are doing, but that, that seems like it'd be crazy. They would expect the 10-year yield to then end at 3.3% at the end of February, at the end of the first quarter, 3.25, uh, and uh, and then they, they look at the yield curve ending uh, actually uninverted by the end of the year, uh, and then potentially the Dixie falling with, with some more buybacks. Their base case scenario, so this is JP Morgan's estimate of what's actually going to happen. All right, you ready for this? Base case scenario, 5.9. The estimate right now from Wall Street is 6.2. Their base case is 5.9. Uh, and so as a result, they expect to get one more 25 BP hike and then a pause in this base case scenario. And then in the next report, they're expecting a 5.6. In their base, in their bull case scenario, they're at 5.7 in tomorrow's report and then a 5.0. I mean, this this is a pretty, pretty interesting one. Now here's their bear case. Oh man. So their bear case is that instead of getting 6.2, we get 6.3. Okay, their worst case scenario is just a 0.1% hike uh, or, or beat on CPI. Now, what's interesting about that is they bring you in at uh, a 4% 10-year treasury. That's not going to be good for real estate uh, after the month. Potentially 4.3, that's back to like the October, November highs when we had like 7.3% interest rates in real estate. This would be terrible, 4.3% uh, by the end of the first quarter. So you really, if, if you want to see real estate bottom out here, you really want do not want the bear case to, to play out tomorrow. You really want the bull case to play out. Now, what odds are they giving this? So on the bull case, let's see here, what do they say? Uh, while we're considering just the near-term setup, it's worth noting that there have only been four periods where the SPY has printed negatively consecutively uh, in consecutive years. Okay, only four periods where the S&P uh, 500 has been negative for two years in a row is basically what they're saying. The Depression, World War II, the 70s, and the tech bubble of the early 2000s. Uh, major drivers of the bull case include CPI continuing to fall, earnings beating expectations, top-line growth. Great, fantastic. Now, they do have this bear case, uh, and this comes out to economic deterioration, feeding earnings, and then, of course, global liquidity, less cash to actually do buybacks, less cash to invest. Uh, interesting. Okay, so so that's sort of JPM's take. I, you know, usually I like looking at JPM's take. I don't know why, but I feel like this is a little bit, um, a little hopium-y, dare I say. <laughs> I don't know. That's, it, it seems a little, uh, well, well optimistic. Let's put it that way. Uh, they do throw in here housing prices uh, on chart here. You can clearly see we're well off the peak that we saw somewhere around May, uh, April, May of 2022. Well off national median home price, uh, well down from about 420 to about 380. So seeing that sort of nice decline, JPM pointing that out here. You do have that used vehicle index popping off again. One of the reasons, by the way, you're seeing that is, is really a substantial decline in the amount of supply that we have for vehicles. So you're still facing supply chain crunches, essentially, uh, in vehicles. So so that's CPI. You do tomorrow also end up getting Coca-Cola reporting. You get Marriott reporting, Airbnb and Upstart reporting. 
Now, uh, you know, some potential issues there with Airbnb. Uh, Airbnb, somebody wrote, uh, and I thought this piece was really actually quite fascinating. But with Airbnb, there was a, uh, a Business Insider piece that reported on uh, a manager of 95 Phoenix area Airbnbs stunned that half of their homes are empty over Super Bowl weekend. Now, the price they were asking was absolutely nutty, uh, in my opinion. But they said they cut their asking price for a night for the Super Bowl from $1,200 for the night to $500. I'm like, my God, $1,200 for an Airbnb in Phoenix. That seems nutty. And they cut their price to $500. Uh, apparently still half of them uh, uh, unavailable or unfilled, I should say, not unavailable. They're available. Half of them were unfilled. And they're suggesting here some U.S. spots are experiencing a glut of short-term rentals that can hurt hosts' booking calendars. It's actually a massive concern that I have with Airbnb earnings coming up. Uh, I personally think we're walking into an Airbnb bubble, a vacation rental bubble. That's mostly because I believe that a lot of people who bought Airbnbs to rent them out, and, and hear this one out because I, I think it's very reasonable, okay? I'm, I'm a big fan of the real estate industry and I love real estate. I've got a housing startup at househack.com. So my take is you have a lot of people in the bull run who are like, oh, I can't lose money on real estate, kind of like 2008, right? And so what they do is they buy a property at, uh, at insane prices and they look at it and go, okay, well, if I wanted to rent this out long term, I'd get 2,800 bucks in rent for this, say, I don't know, $500,000 property. Uh, but if I rent it out on Airbnb, I'm gonna get eight grand and my mortgage is gonna be five grand, let's say. So I'm gonna put little money down and my mortgage is gonna be five grand. So they look at it from an Airbnb point of view and they're like, I'm a cash flow three grand, let's go baby, you know, after fees or whatever, let's say. Uh, and I'm gonna manage myself, it's gonna be my side hustle. I'm gonna make all this money on Airbnb. And, and so, but the long-term rent is actually $2,200 less than what their total payments are. So in other words, they're, they're massively overpaying for the property because of the idea that they could Airbnb it out and make this crazy return. Well, the problem is you're seeing that hotels after sort of this COVID disaster have gotten so competitive that, I mean, you're almost stupid not to go into a hotel because the hotels are so much freaking cheaper in many different areas right now. And you could get a sweet, sweet, so to speak, in many hotels for the price of, of an Airbnb. Uh, and then in the good hotels, you actually have a restaurant in them, you got a bar. I love hotels with a bar. Gotta love it when the alcohol's right there. Okay, anyway, anyway um, so you, you've got some awesome things with hotels and hotels have really gotten hurt during the pandemic. And so they've been cutting prices and becoming very, very efficient. So now you have service and you have on-site amenities. Uh, you know, maybe that's a, a larger pool or a pool at all. Uh, you've got maybe that more consistent service because you've got folks over at Airbnb sometimes uh, finding that the service isn't necessarily as consistent. Uh, and so I think because of this, you're potentially setting up what I think is a situation where a lot of people are realizing, crap, I'll just go in a hotel rather than stay in an Airbnb. And what you end up with is the situation where all of a sudden people are renting out their Airbnbs for what they thought they were going to get. Now they're like, well, maybe I'll just rent it long term 
dang, but if I rent it long-term, I'm upside down. Maybe I should just sell it and take the L. Now, worst case, if they put little money down, they can't even sell it because they're upside down. Now they just lose a ton of money and eventually probably end up selling it anyway. So I think you're probably, there's, there's a good chance you're going to end up seeing sort of a glut of inventory come on the market of people who need to sell out of their homes because they just can't sell on Airbnb anymore. And I actually think it bodes terribly for the Airbnb earnings. I don't know if we'll see that manifest yet in the earnings that, that come out tomorrow. Uh, but, but let's just say... Uh, Vacasa gave me the biggest red flags. You know, this was the last earnings call or earnings report from Vacasa. And they're basically talking about how many difficulties they were having uh, in the third quarter going into the fourth quarter. And basically this fear that all of a sudden uh, they're, they're just not making the money they were getting. Too much variability in bookings, too much recent softness in bookings, uncertain macro environment meaningfully reducing the capital we're allocating to our acquisitions model because basically the numbers don't make sense anymore and it's become harder uh, to actually uh, uh, get properties rented out on Airbnb. So I think you could potentially run into a big Airbnb bubble. Uh, and I don't know that with certainty, but let's just say I'm, I'm bearish on Tuesday's Airbnb report. <laughs> uh, you've got upstart reports as well on Tuesday. Wednesday, we get retail spending. A December decline was somewhere around 1.1%, biggest drop uh, for uh, that we've seen in quite a while. The estimate now is actually 1.9% growth, excluding autos, 0.8% growth, autos and gas, 0.7% growth. And going back to a, for a moment back to CPI or for, to Airbnb, it's possible that you really had like a soft December and maybe the numbers start coming out better in January. Who knows? Maybe that's a little bit more of the Goldilocks theory. But uh, who, who knows? Who knows? Uh, anyway, <laughs> hotels also have great amenities. Those instant gratification. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, then you've got uh, Roblox, Trade Desk, Craft, Generac, Shopify, Roku, and Cisco all reporting Wednesday. You've got UK inflation reporting Wednesday, which comes a day after our inflation read. In December, their inflation was 10.5%. That's down from 10.7% uh, the month prior in November. Empire Manufacturing comes out Wednesday. We're looking at negative 18 versus a 32.9 prior. January industrial production is expected uh, to come out. Uh, we are looking at up 0.5%. That's versus the decline of 0.7% that we experienced in December. On Thursday, we'll get PPI, the producer price index. I wouldn't be surprised if if the CPI comes in low and the PPI comes in high. Wouldn't surprise me because I think producers are feeling higher prices than consumers are going to continue to be able to support. I think consumers are, are sort of refusing to, to continue to pay in certain cases here. So we're looking at a PPI expectation at the moment of 0.4% month over month. Last month was negative 0.5%. And then X Food and Energy, we're looking at 0.3% uh, last was 0.1. Year over year coming down to 5.4 on PPI expected. So we'll see. Building permits expected uh, for uh, Thursday to be 1350. The last report, uh, no joke, was 1337 on the revision. <laughs> uh, that's 1.337 million building permits. Housing starts expected to decline month over month, negative point. Uh, or negative 2.1%, and building permits expected to be actually up potentially at 1%, so, so we'll see.
You do get some more SaaS businesses here, like uh, Datadog, you'll get uh, DraftKings, and then you'll get some others like Hasbro, Dropbox, and Redfin on Thursday. Personally, I'm bearish on anything real estate related, so Redfin, sorry, I'm, I'm not very optimistic. When volumes go down in a real estate uh, recession, uh, you know, real estate agents leave the biz, so. Mm -mm. Ah, cheers to coffee. Not very optimistic. So uh, those are some of the biggest catalysts we're looking at personally for this next week. Uh, you know, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna run some numbers and and look into what the expectations are a little bit more closely for Airbnb with course members and our course member live soon. But uh, we'll see. Cuban friends say Airbnb is going bananas. You're saying same same in Cuba. Uh, let's see. We went on vacation last month to Costa Rica talked to a local who said Airbnb is booming there. People who make $300 a month can now make $300 a week by switching to Airbnb. Nice. Uh, that's why Uncle Jesse says, same in Cuba. Man, that reminds me of Full House. I, I used to love Full House. Uh, Cuban friend says it's going bananas. Well, those are some very good anecdotes, I have to say. That's pretty good. So we'll have to look into potentially those international expansions. Although, uh, how much is international expected to be as a percentage of revenue for Airbnb? I don't know. Who knows? And who knows? Maybe maybe Q4 is a trough for them or they ended up surviving. I have no idea. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll also be talking about shorting builder stocks potentially. So we'll, we'll have a lot to talk about. And course member lives over the next uh, week here. So that'll be fun. Uh, anyway, uh, those, are, uh, those are the big catalysts that we want to pay attention to. For uh, for this week, obviously, I uh, am excited to see you tomorrow for CP. I mean CPI. All right, so uh, that's uh, that's that. Let's uh, do a quick check of the markets and then see what else we've got to cover. We got quite a few things actually. So looking at the markets, we actually went green on futures. That's actually incredible. I was expecting. I mean, futures were down like half a percent yesterday. You just you almost can't trust the futures anymore. Uh, I I still prefer to look at Bitcoin. Uh, although Bitcoin's not actually doing so great, so maybe that's not the best comparison to futures right now. We'll see how the market opens, but Bitcoin's sitting down about uh, two-thirds of a percent here, probably under the weight of a lot of the SEC investigations into uh, uh, BTC, uh, well, not BTC specifically, but into uh, staking uh, and potential lawsuits that we're now seeing uh, regarding Kraken and some of the other companies. So, you, you know, obviously coin, um, uh, what is it, uh, uh, ticker coin, why can't I think of the name of the company? My gosh, Coinbase, of course, geez, that is such a weird mind uh, of a slip there. Uh, Coinbase uh, and, and uh, the CEO, Brian Armstrong, coming out, you know, making this strong argument or trying to at least that uh, staking is not a security. And I find it very interesting because he's specifically saying staking is not a security, kind of leaving the door for the SEC open to suggest that, well, maybe Ethereum or Bitcoin are securities, which obviously crypto enthusiasts would, would argue, uh, but uh, honing in on this idea that uh, just, just, just leave staking alone, leave staking alone. <laughs> Coinbase, of course, got uh, screwed on being able to uh, provide uh, lending uh, and sort of staking, uh, staked uh, yield farming. Uh, that ended up, I think, saving them though pretty, uh, pretty gnarly, uh, pretty gnarly save over the last couple of years, given the implosions we've seen in companies that were enabling staking and the burns that we've seen at, for example, Gemini Earn, uh, 
Uh, so maybe Coinbase had a little bit of an SEC save there, ironically, uh, from not being able to conduct those sort of lending operations like other companies. Apple's pushing into financial services, but apparently hitting some de delays for their buy now, pay later service. I almost wonder if that's sort of like by design. I, I, don't, I honestly don't think getting into buy now, pay later right now is the perfect thing. Uh, regularly, obviously, I've been a big fan of stay away from buy now, pay later stuff going into a recession, lowest quality debt you could expect. So, uh, you know, not, not a surprise to see some of the pain there. Uh, Facebook up a little bit on announcing some more cuts. They've been talking about cutting a lot, especially since they spent so much money on R&D for the uh, metaverse and, uh, and, and their reality headsets. The uh, announcement of uh, layoffs comes at the same time as a lot of companies are trying to double down on, on the idea of artificial intelligence chatbots. Obviously, Google got destroyed, losing a substantial uh, set of market cap uh, after their uh, flub on their chat uh, bot. Uh, I, I also think it's remarkable, though, that a company like Goog could move down uh, so terribly. I mean, we're talking about from February 2nd down about almost 13%. Uh, and this is, uh, this is you know, a $1.2 billion company. So 13%, you're talking about over $150 million just evaporating because of a flub on, uh, on, on a chatbot uh, and uh, AI related to that. Now, obviously, it should do better, but let's be real. I mean, the amount of investment when you invest into a company like Microsoft or, or Google that's going into the chat services is nominal. Uh, for every 100 bucks you put into, for example, Microsoft stock, you're throwing 50 cents into ChatGPT uh, via their investment. Now, you could make the argument that, well, the value will grow. You know, soon my $100 uh, into Microsoft will see that 50 cents turn into maybe $2, and it's great. Yeah, sure, that'll certainly be a little bit of wind at your back. But uh, I don't know, am I, am I jumping up and down about the idea of, uh, of, of investing directly into Microsoft uh, for the chatbots? No, not really, not really at all. Uh, but that's, uh, that's just my take on the markets there. So uh, another thing we should do is talk about Tesla. Uh, so let's do that uh, next. All right. Tesla. Wow. Okay. We had to talk Tesla because Morgan Stanley just came out with a piece on Tesla and it was actually surprisingly bullish, dare I say. Usually Morgan Stanley seems to be the master of bears, uh, especially if you start listening to that Mike Wilson bear. Boy, he is a mega, mega, mega bear. You just can't get through anything, but he's more of a larger macro bear. And this, we got to talk about Tesla. So uh, before we talk about the Morgan Stanley piece on Tesla, it's just worth noting that Hertz has officially taken delivery of roughly 50% of the 100,000 Teslas that they ordered on hand at the end of the last quarter in their Q4 earnings call uh, and report. They reported that they had 48,344 Teslas on hand. Remember that Hertz, as a rental car company, likes Teslas, not only because people, when they go to a destination, want the potential of being able to rent a Tesla, but also they have a large portion of it, uh, or a large portion of their Teslas dedicated to Uber drivers. And so really what they're trying to do, especially during a period of potentially higher gas prices, is going to Uber drivers and essentially being able to say, hey, look, why don't you just rent a Tesla from us 
use the supercharger network, but rent a Tesla from us and use that to make your Uber drives. And a lot of people who get into Tesla Ubers are actually so excited about the idea of being in a Tesla Uber that at least anecdotally, when I get into a Tesla Uber and I talk to the Uber drivers, they, they talk about one of the most beautiful things about having a Tesla is everybody thinks they own the Tesla and then they tip more. So people are getting larger tips renting Teslas from Hertz because people are like, this is so cool, I get to experience a Tesla. Uh, in an Uber, thank you for having bought this, this uh, bought or leased this Uber uh, to provide it for me as as, as a taxi. And meanwhile, they're just renting them from her. It's, it's it's honestly kind of brilliant, and then they're getting more. Fun. So it's like it's win win win, right? It's win from the for the Uber customer. It's win for the Uber driver. It's win for Hertz, and it's a win for Tesla. Now, what's phenomenal is Hertz ordered 100,000 Teslas, so you still technically have another 50K to deliver. So TBD, what's going on with the other 50K, whether it's, you know, production or what, or deliveries, or, or maybe there was some kind of price renegotiation, uh, given some of the recent price drops, and maybe Tesla's pissed. You know, I'm just making this part up, right? In theory, it is, like, if I were Hertz, I'd be like, yo, y'all just lowered your prices. You know, we, we want to take advantage of those lower prices. Although Hertz did announce their original buys uh, before some of the price hikes, but it would be very interesting to compare what Hertz agreed to pay for the cars versus what they are now, and who knows, maybe there's some disparity there. There's also some news regarding full self-driving beta 11, essentially just that it's taking a little longer to launch, uh, in that Elon Musk suggests it's taking, it's it's basically harder than expected, uh, and uh, to, to get it out, and now saying there might be a limited beta release for full self-driving uh, 11 next uh, week, but, uh, you know, Elon Musk's uh, next week tends to be next month, so buckle up. But what is interesting is the Morgan Stanley piece on Tesla. So let's pull up that is right here. So a Morgan Stanley here has their headline listed as Tesla over $200, too much too soon, five key thoughts. So uh, we'll also look at their price target and how they arrive at their price target in just a moment. But they start off by talking about how over the last 27 days, Tesla has accumulated uh, somewhere around a trading volume of $804 billion. By comparison, the 27 days leading up to the end of the calendar of 2022, Tesla had only accumulated uh, around $525 billion uh, on trading volume. Now, what's interesting about that is I, I think you had a lot of dumping of Tesla stock at the end for tax loss harvesting purposes at the end of 2022. I'm not exactly sure if Morgan Stanley has made an adjustment uh, here for that, so we'll see on uh, sentiment. So in other words, they, they, they're basically trying to say, look, we think it's relatively overbought at the moment. That's basically what they're trying to say. Which, I mean, if you just look at some of the simple technicals like the RSI, Relative Strength Index, you'll, you'll see that as well. On sentiment, they suggest that at Morgan Stanley, and this is sort of like, I feel like insider information, but it's, it's fascinating. Uh, on the inside, Morgan Stanley suggests that more of their customers are all of a sudden calling to invest money into Lear, which manufactures corporate jets, I actually think uh, uh, these smaller corporate jet companies have phenomenal pricing power just because of the aerospace shortages that exist. Uh, Embraer being another one, if you want a Brazilian uh, company that's ERJ, I have exposure to that personally and I don't to Lear, so in fairness, I just want to be transparent about that. A hog is the uh, Harley-Davidson uh, motorcycle stock, obviously, here. Uh, and, uh, and, and Morgan Stanley suggesting they're receiving more calls uh, to invest in Lear and Harley-Davidson than they are over Tesla. And they call this highly unusual. 
And uh, so they suggest that maybe, maybe there's some resistance that's sort of lining up with sentiment and the technical saying, hey, you know, short term Tesla, maybe less interest. Although who knows, you know, I think uh, if you go back six months ago and, and you told somebody, hey, you could buy Tesla for, uh, you know, 200 bucks a share, I think people would have loved the, the opportunity <laughs> at that. Uh, I think, uh, well, then again, May, June, we were sitting around 215. Uh, but we were sitting around 300 uh, for a while there in July and uh, and October. So I guess it depends on which part of the last six months you're looking at. <laughs> uh, anyway, so then you have valuation talk. Oh, competition talk. Let's hit competition first. They say, Morgan Stanley here, that we continue to believe that Tesla will short term invest their margin into lowering prices. Now, I think that's a really interesting argument. The way they phrase that investing their margin into lower prices. That's fascinating because we know that Tesla's thinking they're probably gonna get down to about 20% margin, gross vehicle margin, they've already warned us about that. And, uh, and, and you know, right now they're sitting around like 25.8% gross margin. So we're expecting to see a hit there on gross margin as they cut prices and they go through a full quarter of price realization through Q1, Q2, uh, that'd be two full quarters, but anyway, so uh, we, we expect those margins to come down at Tesla, but Morgan Stanley is actually suggesting Tesla making uh, or cutting their prices is them investing their margin into market share. Now, this is something that we believe as well. We agree. We think them pushing their uh, prices down uh, makes everyone in the industry lower their prices, which basically means Ford and likely GM are going to lose more money per vehicle they manufacture in electric vehicles. Rivian and Lucid will go deeper into losses and potentially go bankrupt. Uh, and you'll see companies that are barely profitable on electric vehicles like BYD potentially go negative. Now, who knows, but this is something to pay attention to. And, and I love the framing. Maybe I just love it because obviously I'm bullish on Tesla, but uh, maybe I, I love that framing because I'm biased, but to be clear. But uh, it's a fascinating way to think about a, a, a lowering margin, that you are just investing that in the short term, your margin, taking that loss on margin and, or lower margin, investing it into more market share, then you get the benefit of network effects of potentially more market share in the future and squeezing out your competition. And then longer term, Morgan Stanley says, we expect Tesla will invest their, their additional margin into innovating to grow their margin even more as first, they drive consolidation amongst the EVs, in other words, forcing bankruptcies or people getting people out of the industry. Uh, and then once they're more dominant, they, they profit even more. It's kind of like a 4D chess move and I ship it. Uh, or in an EV video, do you say you drive it? Uh, that doesn't sound as good. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about their valuation in just a moment. Catalyst, uh, they list here, Master Plan 3 expected to re be unveiled March 1st. We're excited to see project or progress on the manufacturing side, including the Gigapress front and rear, the 4680 battery pack, structural pack, and other innovations, including supply chain, upstream material sourcing, and mining. Notice that they don't mention anything about the next uh, platform uh, for for uh, Tesla vehicles, which I think is really just going to be an innovation for margin. Uh, some people are speculating that, oh, there's going to be a new Tesla that it gets announced. I, I don't think so. I think that's highly unlikely and people are setting up to be disappointed, which could potentially create this buy the rumor, sell the news trading opportunity. But Morgan Stanley remains overweight on Tesla. And the reason they do is they have a price target here of a 220 for Tesla. Now, if you're asking to when, it's today. 
So their today's price target is 220. That's because they're discounting their 2030 expectations by 9%. So basically, if you invest today at exactly $220, they believe you would see a 9% return year over year over year over year over year going to 2030. I'm just sort of re-engineering the math to explain it a little bit more simply than starting to get into whack, weighted average cost of capital and, and uh, discounted cash flows. I, th I, I don't, I personally do my valuations a little differently. Uh, I, I come up with a valuation and then I look and say, okay, what is that going to return me compounded annually for the next, uh, you know, X years through my valuation? And the reason I like to do that is because that's a lot easier to come up with than a discounted cash flow statement. Now, don't get me wrong, I could do discounted cash flow all, all day long. But the problem with DCF, in my opinion, is you end up screwing with too many variables. And what I found is as soon as you start screwing with too many variables, you get confused and you don't even realize all of the adjustments you're making to those variables. I think it's a lot easier to do it in a different way, the way that I like to do it. I come up with my sort of valuation and then I work backwards to see, is that valuation what I'm willing to invest at? Uh, long story short, I'm, si I'm oversimplifying here and I know it. But anyway, Morgan Stanley has a price target of 220 today. And if you invested at 220 today, going forward, they would see that would yield you about a 9% return which uh, per year. Now, upside risks, they see uh, potentially increasing the full self-driving take rates. I, I agree with this. Uh, however, something that offsets more people buying FSD is this potential that you end up getting uh, more people signing up for full self-driving using the monthly software as service approach rather than uh, paying $15,000 out of the gate. Now, when you buy the vehicle, you could finance the $15,000, which is great, and still end up getting your energy credits, which again, that's fantastic. That would be great. But if you don't finance it up front, because you want that lower monthly payment and then you add it on later, I think people are gonna go for the sign up for the full self-driving at 199 or 299 a month, rather than, depending on which level you get, rather than paying 15 grand. So I think that's a risk to actually thinking that FSD is going to be very, very profitable in the short term. Although Tesla is starting to incorporate some of the profit from FSD now that they've more widely released it uh, into their, uh, their, their earnings models. Uh, when they report earnings. Obviously, uh, some upsides could be uh, really scaling the Cybertruck, uh, semi-truck, and then they mention here a multi-van. Now, I think multi-van is a, 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 a market that Elon is absolutely excited about and they're absolutely going to get into. I don't think they are right now because I think the presses that you would need to, to put together these vehicles would be substantially larger than the presses they're creating now. Think about pressing like a Cybertruck, uh, sorry, a, a Sprinter van versus a Model 3, right? The press you would need would probably have to be two to three times as large uh, for a multivan like a Mercedes Sprinter van. Now, the reason they call it a multivan is because it could be a passenger van or a cargo van, but that is the next frontier. I promise you that is going to be one of the, the hottest markets uh, for Tesla. If they could come out with a passenger slash cargo van after the pickup truck, that is going to be such a game changer. Now, that's just a rumor right now. Nobody actually knows if they ever actually will. We know that Elon Musk himself is a fan of the Mercedes Sprinter van, as am I. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think we're close to that yet, given just the manufacturing engineering that would be required to do 
so uh, in a in a margin efficient manner. So I think we've we've got a little bit of a wait for that. Uh, certainly, I think this decade, uh, and and that could really create an entire entirely new S curve for Tesla. So that's pretty exciting. But that's a that's more of like icing on the cake. You don't want to buy Tesla stock because you think they're going to come out with a, a you know like a Sprinter van or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a corset creator here writes, a Tesla mom van? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so that actually is something that is missing from Tesla's lineup is Tesla does not actually have a good mommy car. Now in fairness right now, their market is really 25 to 45 year old dudes at like a 70 to 80% market share for, for that market. So they're not really trying to appeal to women. I think that's a big mistake. I actually think they need to have a more mommy functional van and they don't have that right now. The Model X or Model Y are not great for mommy vans, in my opinion, unless you have like just one or two children. As soon as you get more than two children, and even if you have two children, the trunk space is a big issue, especially if you gotta put a stroller and groceries in there. There's just not enough room in these vehicles. Uh, and it, certainly if you're gonna use the seven or six seat configuration, you have basically zero trunk. It's like impossible to get a full family in, in uh, the Model X or Y. Uh, it's very, very tight, especially with car seats. It's just not functional. Now, now, I personally do think the Model Y is the best vehicle that you could buy from Tesla. So if you're going to buy a Tesla, I think it, you, you should absolutely focus on the Model Y. The Model Y was just actually increased $500, and the Model 3 was reduced $500 right before the Super Bowl uh, kickoff. I thought that was really interesting. And, and it doesn't surprise me, though. The margins are better for the Model Y, so that benefits Tesla. But I actually think that's a win for the consumer as well because the Model Y is just, you get so much more space for, for uh, not, not that much more. And, and on a range point of view, I think you get plenty of opportunities on the Model Y. I think that's the best all-around vehicle. But again, it's, it's not a mommy car. That's certainly not a cargo van. Risks to the downside here per, per Morgan Stanley are uh, competition. I put an X there. I don't actually think there's too much competition. Maybe, though, with the Chinese domestics, I'll give them that. You know, BYD is probably your biggest one, so we'll see. Megatech, I don't think so. Legacy, I don't think so. Uh, execution risk with multi, multiple factory ramps, yeah, that becomes expensive. Then you've got uh, China risks, again, like a BYD, yes. Valuation, okay, yeah, maybe. Because, you know... They're, they're looking at uh, only giving you a, a 12 times multiple on Tesla on their EBITDA in 2030. That really assumes that there's not going to be another growth curve that comes out for Tesla by 2030, and that's fine, right? You're assuming no massive take on FSD, robo-taxis, robots. Uh, you're, you're really not building any of that in, and that's fair. You probably do go down to a 12 times multiple by 2030 uh, because, because growth would f slow down without some of these other uh, inputs. So that's Morgan Stanley's model on Tesla. Uh, I have to say, I think it's a very reasonable model here. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think they're just a little nervous because Tesla has added $350 billion of market cap just year to date. And so you could see some downside here uh, in, in the near term. Unless, of course, we get a really good positive CPI. Then, baby, Tesla moon. <laughs> Uh, someone here writes, Max actually writes here, uh, Toyota minivan is so good. Uh, yeah, the Toyota Sienna is a phenomenal vehicle. I'll, I will give them that hands down. Uh, we also happen to own a Toyota Sienna. Uh, we, we compared that to the Odyssey, which was a, a close second, but I, I don't know. I think once we got into Sienna, we were, we were, we were sold. <laughs> uh, but it's kind of weird to say we, we bought the Sienna in, in 2015 when we had our first child. It's crazy to think it's been eight years since we bought that car. Lauren's starting to go, 
Oh, Kevin, my car's eight years old. I'm like, we're not buying a new car. <laughs> anyway, uh, all right, so uh, what do we got here? We have, uh, let's see here, we are at 601. Let's do a quick check of L Markets. And we've got some more to talk about as well. So, quick look into the markets, and uh, we have Dow down 0.04%, Tesla's down about 1.6%. You've got bonds eh, basically flat. Wow, the 10 years at 3.74%. It's not good for real estate, folks. Oil's down about 8 tenths of a percent, S&P 500 up about 1 tenth of a percent, uh, NASDAQ up about uh, a third of a percent. I expect today to be relatively mild as everybody tries to position for the uh, uh, CPI read tomorrow. Minivans are underrated. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, I think uh, they have that bad reputation of like the mommy car, but look, I, you know, I mean, short of a Sprinter van, which I would prefer a Sprinter van over the mommy van, but a Sprinter van's like, you know, that's, it's not really like a mommy van, right? You know, like Lauren's like, Kevin, I'm not taking a Sprinter van to Trader Joe's, right? Like I'm not, I'm not going around with a massive cargo van. And I'm like, all right, all right. I mean, like, fine. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I'm like, how are we going to get to Disney faster? And she's like, Kevin, we'll fly there now. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, so, uh, which is also very ridiculous because instead of being like a four hour drive, if we fly to Disneyland now, it would be 18 minutes. <laughs> but that's unfair. But anyway, so uh, yeah, no, minivans are freaking phenomenal. I mean, really, they don't deserve the bad rap that they get. They have a lot of room. Uh, we have an eight seat Sienna. And even with all eight seats filled, which you're still climbing over each other to get to the seats, right? But once you're in, you could still put a crap load of luggage in the back. So it's like our airport vehicle uh, of, of choice. I mean, it is freaking awesome, man. It is awesome. Sprinter van to Trader Joe's. <laughs> you know, I'm actually seeing uh, more moms start taking Sprinter vans to drop their kids off at school, at least uh, uh, the school my kids go to. And, uh, and I'm like, this is cool. People are starting to catch on in America that Sprinter vans are cool. <laughs> High tops are where it's at, exactly. <laughs> uh, with the big TV in the back. You know, when we went to Victorville, shout out to the agents there. You could actually search this on my channel. Just type in YouTube, meet Kevin Victorville or Sunny, Sunnyville. I don't know, what, what's it called? I can never remember what the place was called. It was some area in, in Victorville. But anyway, the agents rented this Sprinter van that had uh, each row staged up another level. And, uh, and, and then a giant TV with blackout curtains. And I'm like, I'm like in a movie theater here. <laughs> that was so cool. Kyler says he's in a Sprinter van right now. I love it. I'm jealous. I, my favorite car ever, like, and people who look at Sprinter vans, they bag on them. They're like, oh, well, that's going to be hard to drive. Nope. Wrong. Wrong. Those suckers are so easy to drive. It's freaking phenomenal. They are so easy and they turn on a dime, which again, sounds ironic, but... They ride nice, and I like things that ride nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, let's see. I think they call them conversion vans. Yes, they do. So, let's now, uh, when, when you have, like, the TVs and stuff like that, yeah. So, what else we got here? We talked about Metacots. Uh, let's do, how about a little bit of a look into, oh, the bears. All right, we got to give the bears a little bit of a look, and we got to talk about... Uh, the vibe session and no landing. Oh gosh. All right. Uh, let's get started here. Mm -hmm. 
Now we gotta give some credence to the Bears, and of course, every time I give the Bears some credit and show reports from the Bears, like what we're gonna talk about here, whether it's Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, guess what position he's taking? He's a bear! Man, we're gonna go look at what Bloomberg economists are forecasting, we're gonna look at some of their models, we'll look at transitory Goldilocks, and we'll look at the Vibe session. We'll have a lot to talk about, but I have to first disclaim, Anytime I make a bearish video, there are losers that, of course, we're not going to mention by name, but there are these losers who like to take screenshots of my channel, and they're like, eh, look at Kevin. One day he's bullish, one day he's bearish. And it's like, you're just another idiot who doesn't watch to the end of the video. So, th and honestly, not even through the end of the video. I mean, I'm I, honestly, when I cover the bearish stuff, I'm like, look, I'm covering this, but obviously I'm a bull. And here's my take on it, right? Like, it's like, <laughs> it's like, I, I, I don't know. I think sometimes people are just like miserable in their own lives and they have to find a reason to hate on someone. It's like, I think I've been pretty damn consistent about my, my Nike swoosh thesis, right? Uh, I, I want to make that clear up front, okay? You don't even have to make it to the end of the video. I think I'm very clear uh, that while we had that V-shaped recovery and buy the dip was great in, in the COVID pandemic, this is uh, probably an elongated Nike swoosh. We're going to have a lot of ups and downs and, and plenty of buy the dip opportunities and no massive panic rush to, to be all in. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been saying for a bit, you know, I don't think 10 to 15% cash on the sidelines and no margin is, is, is a bad idea. Uh, you know, so uh, those are my takes, but I, I don't know. Those are, those are the same people who, who try to allege things like, oh, well, well, Kevin was selling while he was telling you to buy. That never happened. I like, if I tell you I'm buying, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> like, I would never do that. First of all, I'd get in trouble by the SEC. I'm SEC regulated folks. Okay. <laughs> that would be terrible. Uh, now I might change my mind very quickly. Like I did in January of 2020. And I get that. Like in fairness, it went fast, okay? It went from me buying like January 18th to like January 21st. Oh shit. <laughs> like I finally put the pieces of the puzzle together, right? Uh, which ended up being the right call to, to flip, right? Thank God. But uh, but anyway, so uh, let's talk about some of the, the drama we've got here. So Bloomberg Economics suggesting that Powell's preferred recession indicator skyrocketed in January. Now, from a bearish point of view, that means, oh crap, we're going into a recession. From a bullish point of view, that means, hell yeah, Jerome Powell's preferred measure went dirty. That means he's going to spank us less hard. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so then you've got uh, the the indicators. So what they are basically is you have a three potential yield curves to look at. You have the twos and tens, which is the two-year, ten-year. You've got the three and ten, which is the not the three-year, okay? It's the three-month, ten-year. Uh, and then you have the three-month, eighteen-month yield curve model. And Powell's preferred is the three-month, 18-month model. I'll throw that up on screen right here, and I'll keep myself off of it so you can actually see it so I'm not blocking it. So Powell, and, and this, this chart is honestly a garbage chart. Uh, someone sent this to me, and I'm like, dude, this is such a complicated-looking chart. But anyway... On the far right, you can basically see Powell's line goes up. Okay, it's the deepest inverted yield curve we've seen with the Powell preferred indicator, which suggests recession coming, right? The 2's 10 is pretty high. The 310, obviously pretty inverted as well, but nowhere near as bad as, as Powell's. Powey, good old Powey. Uh, then you've got the Bloomberg e Economics 12-month recession model, and it's basically at 100%. 
which the last time it was at 100% was in 2019, which obviously then we got the COVID pandemic. It was at uh, 100% in 2006 and seven, which obviously we got the Great Recession. Uh, it was at 100% in the dot-com era, which obviously we had the dot-com bubble. But we did have a false indicator in 1998 where you actually had uh, the indicator suggest uh, we had a 100% probability of going into a recession within the next 12 months. And it was actually wrong. We didn't end up going into a recession within the next 12 months. We ended up going into nothing. <laughs> we were we were fine in 1999. And it really wasn't until a year later in, 20, in, 2000, uh, in 2000 that we started seeing, uh-oh, it looks like we might be heading into a recession. And, and then sure enough, we did uh, by uh, like 2000, uh, 2001, 2003, uh, obviously a recessionary era. So it shows you that these, these indicators are not perfect, right? They have false starts. And that's okay. And that's to be expected that these indicators have false starts. But I think one of the things that we also have to be very clear about when we look at these models uh, is that they're not necessarily telling us we're going to hell, right? Like, think think about that for a moment. In fact, one of my, by the way, and this is sort of a tangent, one of my favorite Warren Buffett quotes is tell them to go to hell tomorrow. Uh, very good tool, by the way, for uh, if you're ever in business. <laughs> uh, tell them to go to hell tomorrow. Like, relax your expectations. But uh, anyway, this uh, the idea uh, that, oh, we're definitely going to hit a recession. Okay, fine. So the models say we're definitely going to hit a recession. How bad's the recession going to be? Uh, well, I don't know. Well, sure, the models don't really tell you how bad it's going to be. Now, you can try to suggest when or, or how bad the models are going to be. And the way you do that is you kind of look at, okay, well, if, uh, if we're going to see a recession... Uh, how much is the Federal Reserve going to have to cut? And if you line that up on the charts, right now the Fed's looking at potentially cutting in the event of a recession by 5.25%, because that's how deep the inverted yield curve is. And if you stack that up with a linear regression model to what's historically happened, that's what you get. You get, you know, basically 525 basis points worth of cuts, which is wild. <clears throat> but maybe that's exactly what we end up getting over the next few years. So it could end up playing out, but it could also be that the recession we see is like, Oh no, we're down 0.1% in GDP. Like, okay, that's pretty benign, right? And that's actually what some of the high frequency signals are showing us as well. Uh, this is sort of like some of the, the uh, mortgage pre-approvals. You're actually seeing an increase suggesting, okay, maybe people are still resilient to buy, which is really fascinating. You're seeing, uh, sure, manufacturing and industrial is losing steam, but you're seeing services consumption still pretty dang resilient. <clears throat> you look at the cruise lines, you look at the airlines, like people are still spending. You've got American Express saying people are spending through the recession or whatever it may be. Consumer demand generally stable. I like this one. Bookings at open table as of January are actually up at the start of 2023. Now, it's possible that if they're comparing to 2022, you had you have to remember you had Omicron in 2022 and nobody was going out to restaurants in 2022. That was pretty crazy. Uh, but uh, then you've got, uh, you know, consumers still traveling. <laughs> That's a big deal. Uh, the beige book shows the same thing. It's not just earnings, but it's the Federal Reserve's beige book showing that consumers are still uh, traveling. And yeah, you've got a leveling off of, of job listings and potentially job openings, but the jolt suggested job openings actually open. Indie.com is telling us they're leveling off, but jolts is saying, oh, they're still going up. At the same time as you, you've got, uh, <clears throat> you know, more of this consumer travel demand, you actually have the number of oil rigs down 4.5% since December, at the same time as the Chinese reopening potentially pushing oil demand up. 
And you've got a lot of pessimisms at uh, pessimism levels at, at households, like consumer and business sentiment is pretty uh, pretty poor. Uh, the gap between where consumers feel right now and what they expect for the future is huge. It's the largest that we've seen since the 2008 recession. Uh, and then, of course, you've got people like, <clears throat> well, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson basically saying, look, all of this combined is going to turn into a very ugly earnings season. He's, of course, our staunch bear. He says, look, sure, we're seeing rates go higher, but the market's just not pricing in what higher for longer actually means. And what's going to happen is when those bad earnings come in, markets are going to sell off and you're going to see broad declines on the indices because right now Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson says, look, prices are just straight up disconnected from reality. And maybe tomorrow's CPI report will end up being a reality check, he calls it. Uh, of course, this is also leading to a lot of calls that, hey, we're, we're going to end up going higher for longer. And by going higher for longer, the market's basically not pricing in. That EPS is going to get screwed. Now, that's, that's <clears throat> Mike Wilson. He's the bear at Morgan Stanley. Interestingly, though, not everyone at Morgan Stanley actually agrees with uh, Mike Wilson. So what do you have over here? Ah, uh, the no landing. <laughs> Let's talk about that right after I mention... I need to take a sip of coffee. Mm, bet you weren't expecting that one. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Thank you. All right, so what do we have over here? From the desk of the chief economist of Morgan Stanley. In the year ahead outlook, we present our expectation for a soft landing this year with a forecast of just 0.3% real GDP on a Q4 basis. We hardly call for stellar growth, but foresaw a positive outcome nonetheless. We stood well beyond the more pessimistic consensus at the time. Economists and markets have moved in our direction. Well, except for Mike Wilson. <laughs> uh, but basically, they're, they're saying, look, our conversation suggests the phrase isn't clearly defined. It tends to gloss over policy implications, but seems to most closely resemble a soft landing. In English, Morgan Stanley, other than Mike Wilson, think we can get a soft landing, which is really interesting because Morgan Stanley's kind of playing both sides here. It's kind of like, oh, we're bulls, but we also have a bear at our company. So like if the bear ends up being right, we could put him on a pedestal. And if our chief economist ends up being right, we could put him on a pedestal. Kind of interesting. I don't have that luxury because I think I'm very transparent and I'm very like clear about my positioning. <laughs> I can't play both sides. Unless, of course, you only read the titles. But if you only read the titles, you're a moron. <laughs> I, I think the true people who are here to learn watch the videos and they watch the majority of the videos uh, and, and through them. And I, I hopefully you pick up a lot of info and, and value. That's my goal, right? Provide more value. And whatever business you're in, if you want to make more money, remember the number one rule of thumb is provide more value. Do not be a Yomi. A Yomi is the kind of person that's like, well, you you owe me more pay and maybe if you pay me more money, I'll work harder. Uh, no, you're fired. If you're a Yomi, you're an idiot. Anyway, <clears throat> that's not how capitalism works. Work hard, then you shall receive. The harder you work, the luckier you get. Anyway, hard landing scenario. So they suggest that a hard landing is basically anything with less than 0% GDP. Now, I think that's really interesting. They're basically saying anything hard is a recession. Anything, and that they also call this potentially the Fed over tightening. Anything soft, they actually think is just slow GDP growth, right? Below GDP trend growth, which would be zero to 1.5% uh, trend growth. Uh, resilient growth, they think is 
this no landing scenario where the plane just doesn't come in for the landing, right? And what is the uh, no landing scenario? Well, the no landing uh, scenario is the economy doesn't slow down, but inflation goes back to target. This is a version of the world where potential is simply higher than anyone thought. I include this scenario. However, it's unlikely that it plays out this year but they're including it to cover a full range of possibilities. So this is really interesting. So the Morgan Stanley's basically saying, look, we're, we're not going to get a, a, like a no landing scenario where, where a recession is, or uh, GDP growth is over 1.5%. I mean, I kind of agree. I don't, I don't think that the economy is going to grow at more than 1.5%. I, I, my base case is the soft landing, right? Like is, is that basically we're, we're sitting, even if we have no growth, it's still not necessarily going to be a recession or if it's a recession, it's going to be like 0.1%. Like it's going to be the most benign recession ever. Uh, I really don't see this as like an 08. We don't have the massive structural disasters that we have. And, and it's still possible, even though the word is really disgusting, it is still possible that inflation could prove to be transitory. And that's what I'm seeing in sort of leading indicators from earning calls, from earnings calls from companies. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have a bad CPI read tomorrow. That's sort of a very short-term uh, outlook. Uh, but, but for the next year, I think the trend is very clear down. Uh, so uh, balance of the data coming out is starting to be mixed. Uh, GDP and manufacturing data so far are lining up with potentially flat growth, uh, flat GDP growth for the year, which I, I don't think flat GDP growth is really flat. I think it means no growth. It means zero. Uh, consumer or rather uh, conference boards leading economic indicators, LEI, uh, suggesting definitely a recession within the next 12 months. That's very similar to what Bloomberg says. But then again, it's like, like, okay, well, how bad is it going to be? You know, is this just statistical noise? Morgan Stanley talks about these indicators potentially just being noise. It's like, okay, well, sure, we've got a really inverted yield curve, but how bad is it going to be? Now, this was interesting because Credit Suisse actually started talking about PP. Uh, they talk about uh, this idea that even without a full-blown recession, we could expect corporate earnings to suffer. This is the Mike Wilson argument, right? But this is at Credit Suisse as much as you could trust them for what it's worth. But anyway, they think that earnings will fall significantly below current consensus expectations. They think that waning growth, waning, here it is, pricing power and increased interest rates provide an unfavorable mix of factors. I actually agree with this. I think broadly, many of the companies in our indices, especially the S&P 500, are going to see pricing power evaporate. And that's mostly because companies are going to either have to cut prices uh, or keep prices stable in the face of still embers of inflation, which basically means rising costs, which means that these companies take it in the uh, in the margin, basically. Uh, so their margin absorbs some of the pain. Uh, and, and that is generally aligned with a lack of pricing power. Now, don't get me wrong. I think every company is going to lack pricing power relative to 2021. No company is going to have the same PP they had in 2021. You know, they all got a little bit older. Their PP just doesn't function as well anymore now that they're all a little bit older. But there are still some PPs that are bigger and stronger than other PPs. Uh, so, and I think the goal is to find the largest PP. Yeah, in, in a tough time. Anyway, so a uh, big fan of pricing power uh, and finding that. Now, should wage growth remain elevated as PP wanes and gets smaller, uh, you would end up having another drag on earnings. So this is, again, suggesting if you're looking for companies, again, your goal is to try to find 
uh, the biggest PP. That's a Credit Suisse piece. I'm actually really impressed they started talking about PP because I think it's very, very important. It's actually the first piece I've really seen talk about PP uh, in, in this cycle. I'm pretty impressed by that. Uh, now, this is interesting. They, they call the Goldilocks scenario potentially transitory. Here's just another Credit Suisse piece. Uh, they do not expect a sustained upturn in some uh, industrial production numbers. And uh, even though we're, we, we've seen a contraction, we're expecting a rebound. They just don't see that rebound to be very large. Now, what is interesting is they think the impact of COVID-0 going away in China will be relatively limited uh, on uh, inflationary impacts, that maybe there'll be some inflationary push through to European industry, like uh, industries like German manufacturing and autos. But otherwise, they say that zero COVID was not a major impediment to Chinese industrial activity. I kind of scratch my head a little bit about that because I do feel like a lot of factories were suffering because of zero COVID uh, and, and sort of the lockdowns. But they really think the biggest move up is services, which is true. I mean, that's what we're seeing so far in the boom in China is travel and entertainment, much like what's booming, obviously, over here as well. And they think there are clear risks to see oil over $90 a barrel. But then again, at the beginning of January, everybody's like, oh, oil's going to go to uh, $100 a barrel. And it just like never ended up happening. And who knows? It could still happen. And, and now I'm starting to see their estimates fall, though. Business surveys fall in uh, to levels consistent with a severe slump and that maybe momentum will stabilize. The Credit Suisse here warning, and this aligns with sort of their, their small PP argument, smaller pricing power argument. They expect that consumer strength will fade in the months ahead, along with retail sales trending sideways. Biggest risks being furniture and appliance demand as home sales continue to deteriorate, as well as business fixed investment likely struggling. Uh, and we do not expect uh, a, a sharp contraction though. Uh, so again, this is really in line with this idea of like a shallow kind of recession, right? Inventory is still pretty high. You saw the same complaint about inventory still being high at companies like Energizer Batteries. Uh, this is hitting companies like Target and Walmart and so on. Uh, however, you're still understocked in autos. And uh, the argument is that you might be seeing, a, I hate using this word, but potentially a transitory bump in inflation for autos, uh, potentially because of the understocking uh, that we're seeing. Uh, they do expect that household consumption in China will improve this year, but again, likely in services, structural headwinds will remain and goods demand will remain below pre-pandemic levels. Uh, part of this is because of an increase in precautionary savings by individuals because of wealth lost thanks to lower property prices. Remember, their real estate disaster was somewhere in the effect of, uh, you know, 35 to 40 percent price decline. So you've got some major hits over there. Uh, from China. Uh, so emerging markets ex-China, generally people are pretty bullish. However, inflation is still present in emerging markets. So you have to kind of be careful. In Latin America, they think uh, you're, you're still seeing supply side issues uh, that'll really hurt the pace of disinflation. Uh, and I see that when I analyze Embraer. I mean, they're still suffering, man, with, with uh, increasing in prices and supply chain shortages and stuff, uh, which in the short term does give them uh, some more pricing power for, for selling jets. But uh, yeah, you know, that's, um, <laughs> uh, that's uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. And then there's this idea of a vibe session. Okay, I'm going to be very brief about that. The idea of a vibe session is that basically uh, everybody feels like we're going into a recession, but maybe we don't actually end up hitting a recession. That's sort of consistent with the idea of a soft landing. And I thought it was really an interesting phrase, like really a vibe session. That sounds pretty lame, but okay, I'll, I'll address it. So uh, you've got, you've got really... In my opinion, if you kind of look at this, like all this sort of more bearish analysis, <clears throat> anything pointing to a recession is kind of like, okay, yeah, earnings are going to go down. 
but how much? And and it's really like, okay, so we might go into recession, but how much? And it's kind of like nominally, <laughs> like it doesn't really seem like people are really like that worried that this is going to be a uh, fall off the cliff style recession. Although who knows? Uh, and I, I think tomorrow's CPI will give us a little bit of a, of a, of a, an indicator. <laughs> yeah, take it to the margin, man. Take it to the margin. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so uh, yeah, that that's my take. Uh, you know, optimistic, uh, but cautious. Cautiously optimistic. That's my position. So anyway, there you have that. Okay, uh, let's do a quick check of the markets, and then I gotta get uh, make another cup of coffee, and then I'm going to the uh, course member live stream. So what do we got here? Quick look. Going into the opening, we got four minutes to the opening bell. Basically, all the indices flat. Bond yields falling a little bit. Maybe that bearish positioning we got Thursday, Friday is, is cooling off a little bit, though Tesla's still down about 1.22% here going into the open. You've got pre-market, Monday.com, Fastly, Outlet, all up 9 to 10%. Downside, Blue Apron gets wrecked. Oh, 18.4%. Yikes. Uh, Cinemark down 1.3, Genius Brands down, uh, what do you got, 3.5 over here. All right, folks, there you have it. Going over to the Course Member live stream in two minutes. We'll see you there shortly. Thanks so much, and goodbye.